0: After the 2010 census, North Carolina created a redistricting plan to reflect population changes in their congressional districts. So, two congressional districts were altered to have a Black Voting Age Population, or BVAP, over 50% leadership of the state's redistricting committees claimed that this was done to comply with section two of the Voting Rights Act. The new plan was enacted by the North Carolina legislature and it was subsequently granted pre-clearance by the Department of Justice, as was required by section five of the Voting Rights Act, which at that time had not yet been struck down by the court. Later, two voters from the altered North Carolina congressional districts sued the state, arguing that North Carolina used the VRA's requirements to simply place more black voters in those two districts in order to dilute the black vote in the other districts in the state. The district court agreed, holding that race was the primary factor motivating the redistricting plan making it a racial gerrymander in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The questions before the court in this case were whether the lower court erred in determining that North Carolina's new districting plan constituted a racial gerrymander that violated the Equal Protection Clause whether the claims should have been dismissed under the doctrine of issue preclusion or claim preclusion, and whether the Supreme Court should resolve a disagreement between the differing conclusions reached by the lower court and the North Carolina Supreme Court in this case. So how did the court rule in this case in which the conservative Justice Clarence Thomas voted with the liberal justices on the bench? Well... Let's find out right now, in the 2017 Opinion of the Court, in Cooper v. Harris. Justice Kagan delivered the Opinion of the Court. The Constitution entrusts states with a job of designing congressional districts, but it also imposes an important constraint. A state may not use race as the predominant factor in drawing district lines unless it has a compelling reason. In this case, a three-judge district court ruled that North Carolina officials violated that bar when they created two districts whose voting age populations were majority black. Applying a deferential standard of review to the factual findings underlying that decision, we affirm. Part 1 Section A The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment limits racial gerrymanders in legislative districting plans. It prevents a state in the absence of sufficient justification from separating its citizens into different voting districts on the basis of race. When a voter sues state officials for drawing such race-based lines, our decisions call for a two-step analysis. First, the plaintiff must prove that race was the predominant factor motivating the legislature's decision to place a significant number of voters within or without a particular district. That entails demonstrating that the legislature subordinated other factors, compactness, respect for political subdivisions, partisan advantage, what have you, into racial considerations. The plaintiff may make the required showing through direct evidence of legislative intent, circumstantial evidence of a district's shape and demographics, or a mix of both. Second, if racial considerations predominated over others, the design of the district must withstand strict scrutiny. The burden thus shifts to the state to prove that its race-based sorting of voters serves a compelling interest and is narrowly tailored to that end. This court has long assumed that one compelling interest is complying with operative provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 or VRA. Two provisions of the VRA, Section 2 and Section 5, are involved in this case. Section 2 prohibits any standard, practice, or procedure that results in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. We have construed that ban to extend to vote dilution, brought about most relevantly here by the dispersal of a group's members into districts in which they constitute an ineffective minority of voters. Section 5, at the time of the districting in dispute, worked through a different mechanism. Before this court invalidated its coverage formula, that section required certain jurisdictions including various North Carolina counties, to pre-clear voting changes with the Department of Justice, so as to forestall retrogression in the ability of racial minorities to elect their preferred candidates. When a state invokes the VRA to justify race-based districting, it must show, to meet the narrow tailoring requirement, that it had a strong basis in evidence for concluding that the statute required its action. Or said otherwise, the state must establish that it had good reasons to think that it would transgress the act if it did not draw race-based district lines. That strong basis or good reasons standard gives states breathing room to adopt reasonable compliance measures that may prove, in perfect hindsight, not to have been needed. A district court's assessment of a districting plan, in accordance with the two-step inquiry just described, warrants significant deference on appeal to this court we, of course, retain full power to correct a court's errors of law at either stage of the analysis. But the court's findings of fact, most notably as to whether racial considerations predominated in drawing district lines, are subject to review only for clear error. Under that standard, We may not reverse just because we would have decided the matter differently. A finding that is plausible in light of the full record, even if another is equally or more so, must govern. Section B This case concerns North Carolina's most recent redrawing of two congressional districts, both of which have long included substantial populations of black voters. In its current incarnation, District 1 is anchored in the northeastern part of the state, with appendages stretching both south and west. District 12 begins in the south-central part of the state, and then travels northeast, zigzagging much of the way to the state's northern border. Both have quite the history before this court. We first encountered the two districts in their 1992 versions in Shaw v. Reno, 1993, There we held that voters stated an equal protection claim by alleging that Districts 1 and 12 were unwarranted racial gerrymanders. After a remand to the district court, the case arrived back at our door. That time, we dismissed the challenge to District 1 for lack of standing, but struck down District 12. The design of that serpentine district, we held, was nothing if not race-centric and could not be justified as a reasonable attempt to comply with the VRA. The next year, the state responded with a new districting plan, including a new District 12, and residents of that district brought another lawsuit alleging an impermissible racial gerrymander. A district court sustained the claim twice, but both times this court reversed. Racial considerations, we held, did not predominate in designing the revised District 12. Rather, that district was the result of a political gerrymander, an effort to engineer, mostly without regard to race, a safe Democratic seat. The state redrew its congressional districts again in 2001 to account for population changes revealed in the prior year's census. Under the 2001 map, which went unchallenged in court, neither District 1 nor District 12, had a black voting age population called a BVAP that was a majority of the whole. The former had a BVAP of around 48%, the latter a BVAP of around 43%. Nonetheless, In five successive general elections conducted in those reconfigured districts, all the candidates preferred by most African American voters won their contests. And by some handy margins, in District 1, black voters' candidates of choice garnered as much as 70% of the total vote, and never less than 59%. And in District 12, those candidates won with 72% of the vote at the high end and 64% at the low. Another census in 2010 necessitated yet another congressional map, the one at issue in this case. State Senator Robert Rucho and State Representative David Lewis, both Republicans, Chaired the two committees jointly responsible for preparing the revamped plan. They hired Dr. Thomas Hoffeller, a veteran political mapmaker, to assist them in redrawing district lines. Several hearings, drafts, and revisions later, both chambers of the state's General Assembly adopted the scheme the three men proposed. The new map, among other things, significantly altered both District 1 and District 12. The 2010 census had revealed District 1 to be substantially underpopulated. To comply with the Constitution's one-person, one-vote principle, the state needed to place almost 100,000 new people within the district's boundaries. Rucho, Lewis, and Hoffeller chose to take most of those people from heavily black areas of Durham, requiring a finger-like extension of the district's western line. With that addition, District 1's BVAP rose from 48.6% to 52.7%. District 12, for its part, had no need for significant total population changes. It was overpopulated by fewer than 3,000 people out of over 730,000. Still, Rucho, Lewis, and Hoffeller decided to reconfigure the district, further narrowing its already snake-like body while adding areas at either end. Most Relevantly here in Guilford County. Those changes appreciably shifted the racial composition of District 12. As the district gained some 35,000 African Americans of voting age and lost some 50,000 whites of that age, its BVAP increased from 43.8% to Registered voters in the two districts brought this suit against North Carolina officials complaining of impermissible racial gerrymanders. After a bench trial, a three-judge district court held both districts unconstitutional. All the judges agreed that racial considerations predominated in the design of District 1, and in then applying strict scrutiny, all rejected the state's argument that it had a strong basis for thinking that the VRA compelled such a race-based drawing of District 1's lines. As for District 12, a majority of the panel held that race predominated over all other factors— including partisanship, and the court explained that the state had failed to put forward any reason, compelling or otherwise, for its attention to race in designing that district. Judge Osteen dissented from the conclusion that race, rather than politics, drove District 12's lines, yet still characterized the majority's view As eminently reasonable, the state filed a notice of appeal, and we noted probable jurisdiction. Part 2 We address at the outset North Carolina's contention that a victory it won in a very similar state court lawsuit should dictate or at least influence our disposition of this case. As the state explains, the North Carolina NAACP and several other civil rights groups challenged Districts 1 and 12 in state court immediately after their enactment, charging that they were unlawful racial gerrymanders. By the time the plaintiffs before us filed this action, the state trial court in Dixon v. Rucho had rejected those claims, finding that in District 1, the VRA justified the General Assembly's use of race, and that in District 12, race was not a factor at all. The North Carolina Supreme Court then affirmed that decision by a 4-3 to vote, applying the state court equivalent of clear error review. In this court, North Carolina makes two related arguments based on the Dixon litigation. First, that the state trial court's judgment should have barred this case altogether under familiar principles of claim and issue preclusion. And second, that the state court's conclusions should cause us to conduct a searching review of the decision below, rather than deferring as usual to its factual findings. The state's preclusion theory rests on an assertion about how the plaintiffs in the two cases are affiliated. As the state acknowledges, one person's lawsuit generally does not bar another's, no matter how similar they are in substance. But when plaintiffs in two cases have a special relationship, a judgment against one can indeed bind both. The state contends that Harris and Bowser, the plaintiffs here, are members of organizations that were plaintiffs in Dixon. And according to North Carolina, that connection prevents the pair from raising anew the questions that the state court previously resolved against those groups. But North Carolina never satisfied the district court that the alleged affiliation really existed, When the state argued that its preclusion theory entitled it to summary judgment, Harris and Bowser responded that they were not members of any of the organizations that had brought the Dixon suit. The party's dueling contentions turned on intricate issues about those groups' membership policies. For example, could Harris's payment of dues to the National NAACP or Bowser's financial contribution to the Mecklenburg County NAACP have made either a member of the state branch? Because of those unresolved factual disputes, the district court denied North Carolina's motion for summary judgment, and nothing in the subsequent trial supported the state's assertion about Harris's and Bowser's organizational ties. Indeed, the state chose not to present any further evidence relating to the membership issue. Based on the resulting record, the district court summarily rejected the state's claim that Harris and Bowser were something other than independent plaintiffs. That conclusion defeats North Carolina's attempt to argue for claim or issue preclusion here. We have no basis for For assessing the factual assertions underlying the state's argument any differently than the district court did. Nothing in the state's evidence clearly rebuts Harris's and Bowser's testimony that they never joined any of the Dixon groups. We need not decide whether the alleged memberships would have supported preclusion if they had been proved. It is enough that the district court reasonably thought they had not the state's backup argument about our standard of review also falls short. The rule that we review a trial court's factual findings for clear error contains no exception for findings that diverge from those made in another court. Whatever findings are under review receive the benefit of deference without regard to whether a court in a separate suit has seen the matter differently. So here we must ask not which court considering Districts 1 and 12 had the better view of the facts, but simply whether the court below's view is clearly wrong. That does not mean the state court's decision is wholly irrelevant. It is common sense that, all else equal, a finding is more likely to be plainly wrong if some judges disagree with it. But the very premise of clear error review is that there are often too permissible because too plausible views of the evidence. Even assuming the state court's findings capture one such view, the district court's assessment may yet represent another. And the permissibility of the district court's account is the only question before us. Part 3. With that out of the way, we turn to the merits of this case, beginning appropriately enough with District 1. As noted above, the court below found that race furnished the predominant rationale for that district's redesign, and it held that the state's interest in complying with the VRA could not justify that consideration of race. We uphold both conclusions. Section A. Uncontested evidence in the record shows that the state's mapmakers in considering District 1 purposefully established a racial target. African Americans should make up no less than a majority of the voting age population. Senator Rucho and Representative Lewis were not coy in expressing that goal. They repeatedly told their colleagues that District 1 had to be majority-minority so as to comply with the VRA. During a Senate debate, for example, Rucho explained that District 1 must include a sufficient number of African Americans to make it a majority-black district. Similarly, Lewis informed the House and Senate redistricting committees that the district must have a majority black voting age population. And that objective was communicated in no uncertain terms to the legislator's consultant. Dr. Hoffeller testified multiple times at trial that Rucho and Lewis instructed him to draw District 1 with a BVAP in excess of 50%. Hoffeller followed those directions to the letter, such that the 50% plus racial target had a direct and significant impact on District 1's configuration. In particular, Hoffeller moved the district's borders to encompass the heavily black parts of Durham, and only those parts— Thus, taking in tens of thousands of additional African American voters. That change and similar ones made to ensure that the district's racial composition would add up correctly deviated from the districting practices he otherwise would have followed. Hoffeller candidly admitted that point. For example, he testified. He sometimes could not respect county or precinct lines as he wished because the more important thing was to create a majority-minority district. The result is a district with stark racial borders. Within the same counties, the portions that fall inside District 1 have black populations two to three times larger than the portions placed in neighboring districts. Faced with this body of evidence showing an announced racial target that subordinated other districting criteria and produced boundaries amplifying divisions between blacks and whites, the district court did not clearly err in finding that race predominated in drawing District 1. Indeed, as all three judges recognized, the court could hardly have concluded anything but... Section B. The more substantial question is whether District 1 can survive the strict scrutiny applied to racial gerrymanders. As noted earlier, we have long assumed that complying with the VRA is a compelling interest, and we have held that race-based districting is narrowly tailored to that objective if a state had good reasons for thinking that The Act demanded such steps. North Carolina argues that District 1 passes muster under that standard. The General Assembly, so says the state, had good reasons to believe it needed to draw District 1 as a majority-minority district to avoid Section 2 liability for vote dilution. We now turn to that defense. This court identified in Thornburg v. Jingles three threshold conditions for proving vote dilution under Section 2 of the VRA. First, a minority group must be sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in some reasonably configured legislative district. Second, the minority group must be politically cohesive. And third, A district's white majority must vote sufficiently as a block to usually defeat the minority's preferred candidate. Those three showings we have explained are needed to establish that the minority group has the potential to elect a representative of its own choice in a possible district, but that racially polarized voting prevents it from doing so in the district as actually drawn because it is submerged in a larger white voting population. If a state has good reason to think that all Jingle's preconditions are met, then so too it has good reason to believe that Section 2 requires drawing a majority-minority district. But if not, then not. Here, electoral history provided no evidence that a Section 2 plaintiff could demonstrate the third jingle's prerequisite, effective white bloc voting. For most of the 20 years prior to the new plan's adoption, African Americans had made up less than a majority of District 1's voters. The district's BVAP usually hovered between 46% and 48%. Yet throughout those two decades, as the district court noted, District 1 was an extraordinarily safe district for African-American preferred candidates. In the closest election during that period, African-Americans' candidate of choice received 59% of the total vote. In other years, the share of the vote garnered by those candidates rose to as much as 70%. Those victories, indeed landslides, occurred because the district's white population did not vote sufficiently as a block to thwart black voters' preference. Rather, a meaningful number of white voters joined a politically cohesive black community to elect that group's favored candidate. In the lingo of voting law, District 1 functioned election year in and election year out, As a crossover district, in which members of the majority help a large enough minority to elect its candidate of choice. When voters act in that way, it is difficult to see how the majority block voting requirement could be met, and hence how Section 2 liability could be established. So, experience gave the state no reason to think that the VRA required it to ramp up District 1's BVAP. The state counters that in this context, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Recall here that the state had to redraw its whole congressional map following the 2010 census and in particular, the state had to add nearly 100,000 new people to District 1 to meet the one-person, one-vote standard. That meant about 13% of the voters in the new district would never have voted there before. So, North Carolina contends the question facing the state mapmakers was not whether the then-existing District 1 violated Section 2, Rather, the question was whether the future District 1 would do so if drawn without regard to race. And that issue, the state claims, could not be resolved by focusing myopically on past elections. But that reasoning, taken alone, cannot justify North Carolina's race-based redesign of District 1. True enough a legislature undertaking a redistricting must assess whether the new districts it contemplates conform to the VRA's requirements. And true to an inescapable influx of additional voters into a district may suggest the possibility that its former track record of compliance can continue only if the legislature intentionally adjusts its racial composition. Still, North Carolina, too, far downplays the significance of a long-time pattern of white crossover voting in the area that would form the core of the redrawn District 1. And even more important, North Carolina can point to no meaningful legislative inquiry into what it now rightly identifies as the key issue, whether a new enlarged District 1, created without a focus on race, but however else the state would choose, could lead to Section 2 liability. The prospect of a significant population increase in a district only raises, it does not answer, the question whether Section 2 requires deliberate measures to augment the district's BVAP. To have a strong basis in evidence, to conclude that Section 2 demands such race-based steps, the state must carefully evaluate whether a plaintiff could establish the Jingles preconditions, including effective white-block voting in a new district created without those measures. We see nothing in the legislative record that fits that description. And that absence is no accident. Rucho and Lewis proceeded under a wholly different theory, arising not from Jingles, but from Bartlett v. Strickland, of what Section 2 demanded in drawing District 1. Strickland involved a geographic area in which African-Americans could not form a majority of a reasonably compact district. The African-American community, however, was sizable enough to enable the formation of a crossover district in which a substantial block of black voters, if receiving help from some white ones, could elect the candidates of their choice. A plurality of this court, invoking the first Jingle's precondition, held that Section 2 did not require creating that district. When a minority group is not sufficiently large to make up a majority in a reasonably shaped district, Section 2 simply does not apply. Over and over in the legislative record, Rucho and Lewis cited Strickland as mandating a 50% plus BVAP in District 1. They apparently reasoned that if, as Strickland held, Section 2 does not require crossover districts, then Section 2 also cannot be satisfied by crossover districts. In effect, they concluded, whenever a legislature can draw a majority-minority district, It must do so, even if a crossover district would also allow the minority group to elect its favored candidates. That idea, though, is at war with our Section 2 jurisprudence, Strickland included. Under the state's view, the third Jingles condition is no condition at all because even in the absence of effective white bloc voting, A Section 2 claim could succeed in a district like the old District 1 with an under 50% BVAP. But this court has made clear that unless each of the three Jingle's prerequisites is established, there neither has been a wrong nor can be a remedy. And Strickland far from supporting North Carolina's view, underscored the necessity of demonstrating effective white block voting to prevail in a Section 2 vote dilution suit. The plurality explained that in areas with substantial crossover voting, Section 2 plaintiffs would not be able to establish the third Jingles precondition, and so majority-minority districts would not be required. Thus, North Carolina's belief that it was compelled to redraw District 1 as a majority-minority district rested not on a strong basis in evidence, but instead on a pure error of law. In sum, Although states enjoy leeway to take race-based actions reasonably judged necessary under a proper interpretation of the VRA, that latitude cannot rescue District 1. We by no means insist that a state legislature, when redistricting, determine precisely what percent minority population Section 2 of the VRA demands— But neither will we approve a racial gerrymander whose necessity is supported by no evidence and whose raison d'etre is a legal mistake. Accordingly, we uphold the district court's conclusion that North Carolina's use of race as the predominant factor in designing District 1 does not withstand strict scrutiny. (laughs) We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.